Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Delta Airlines first quarter 2017 earnings call. Today's call is being recorded. At this time, I am pleased to turn the conference over to Joe Greer. Please go ahead, ma'am. Thanks, Jennifer. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us on our March quarter call. Joining us from Atlanta today are our CEO, Ed Bastian, our President, Glenn Howenstein, and our CFO, Paul Jacobson. Our entire leadership team is here in the room for the Q&A session. Ed will open the call and give an overview of Delta's financial performance. Glenn will then address the revenue environment, and Paul will conclude with a review of our cost performance and cash flow. To get in as many questions as possible during the Q&A, please limit yourself to one question and a brief follow-up. Today's discussion contains forward-looking statements that represent our beliefs or expectations about future events. All forward-looking statements involve risks and uncertainties that could cause the actual results to differ materially from the forward-looking statements. Some of the factors that may cause such differences are described in Delta's SEC filings. We will discuss non-GAAP financial measures. All results exclude special items unless otherwise noted. We are also providing cost comparisons on a normalized basis, as this better matches the retroactive expense we incurred in the fourth quarter of 2016 from our pilot contract to the appropriate quarters of 2016. You can find the reconciliation of our non-GAAP measures on the investor relations page at ir.delta.com. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Ed. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Appreciate you all joining us this morning. Earlier today, we reported a pre-tax profit of $847 million for the March quarter and earnings per share of $0.77, cents, which compares to consensus to $0.75. Cents. We delivered an operating margin of 10.7%, a 23% return on invested capital, and returned $350 million to our shareholders. While these results are lower than last year due largely to higher fuel prices, they still represent the second best quarter, March quarter, in Delta's history. Operationally, we hold ourselves to a high standard. We had 64 perfect completion mainline, uh, perfect mainline completion factor days in the first quarter, ahead of last year's record of 58 days. And prior to April the 5th, we ran 18 consecutive days without a cancellation. However, last Wednesday, we had a major spring storm in Atlanta which brought the airport to a full ground stop for most of the day, requiring significant diversions. The storm hit our largest hub during spring break, one of the busiest weeks of the season, and it took us several days to fully recover the operation. We canceled approximately 4,000 flights as a result, which we expect will reduce our June quarter pre-tax profit by $125 million. The good news is we're fully back up this week and indeed had another perfect completion factor day yesterday. It is our reliability and great service that have allowed us to improve customer satisfaction levels. Our strong customer satisfaction is why we're able to sustain our 109% revenue premium to the industry, and we never take that customer satisfaction for granted. To our customers, we apologize for the disruption to their schedules. These events always provide fertile ground for learnings on how to minimize these disruptions in the future, and we are actively engaged with our team uh, making significant improvements to our crew tracking and scheduling processes, as well as our customer information systems. I want to thank the Delta people for working through some incredibly tough conditions to take care of our customers and get the operation back on track. You are the very best in our business. Now, as we look ahead to the remainder of the year, the durability we've built in our business is evident in our ability to withstand an event like this storm as well as rising fuel prices, and yet remain on track to produce a 2017 forecasted pre-tax profit that is similar to the $6 billion range we made in 2016, which would be our third year in a row at the $6 billion level. 
And while it took longer to get here than anyone anticipated, we are back to positive unit revenues and expect the revenue recovery to gain momentum as we move forward. This puts us back in the position of generating the top-line growth necessary to offset the cost pressures we face and produce margin expansion in our business over the long term. Nevertheless, we remain committed to keeping our capacity capped at 1% for the year, as we believe this will help firm unit revenues and get us through this year on better footing and on the path to achieving our long-term financial goals. Next month marks our 10-year anniversary of the completion of our restructuring and relisting on the New York Stock Exchange. And as we look back, there are four key pillars that have driven the value we have created and that we're now leveraging to take us into the next decade of success. First, running the best airline in the industry, a safe, reliable, customer-focused operation, which is made possible by the very best people in the industry. Next, enhancing our brand by investing in the products and services that customers value. That's what drives our revenue and brand premium, with strong customer loyalty creating a more durable top line. Third, becoming a truly global airline on which we made important strides this quarter, successfully completing our tender offer that will result in a 49% ownership stake in Aeromexico, uh, and we expect to formally launch our trans-border Mexican JV later this month. And we also signed a memorandum of understanding for a trans-Pacific joint venture with Korean, which has been a great partner of ours in North Asia for more than 20 years. This step will significantly enhance our strategic position across Asia, and I believe is a real game changer. And finally, the steps we've taken to create a durable franchise allows us to invest for the long term in our employees, in our product, in our balance sheet, and in our owners, because all of our stakeholders have to share in Delta's success for this model to work. A fundamental change, maybe the fundamental change to our business model, is we now truly compete on quality and service, not just price. That's what successful consumer product and service companies do. Executing on these core pillars is what will position us to deliver consistent, sustainable results through the business cycle. We look forward to recognizing the 10-year anniversary of our relisting at the New York Stock Exchange on May the 3rd, and we also look forward to sharing more details on our capital deployment plans for the next few years at our May Investor Day the following week. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Glenn and Paul to go through more details on the quarter. Glenn? Thanks, Ed, and good morning, everyone. I want to start by joining Ed and thanking the Delta people for their efforts over the past week as we recovered from the storm in Atlanta. Your best-in-class service makes the difference to our customers and sets Delta apart in the industry. Turning to the current environment, while the pace of the revenue recovery was a bit slower than what we had originally anticipated, we are continuing to see improvement in revenue trends across our network. Quickly recapping our top-line performance, we reported total revenues down 1% on slight declines in passenger and cargo revenues. Our passenger revenue declined $74 million, including $20 million of lower hedge gains. Passenger unit revenues for the quarter came in essentially flat, and we were better sequentially each month. In March, System Prasm turned positive, marking the first year-over-year improvement since November of 2015. The March quarter is the third consecutive quarter we have seen sequential improvement. Prasm was two points better than the December quarter and six points ahead of the September quarter with better results across all regions. We continue to drive value through our loyalty program in the quarter. 
flight redemptions were up 10% year over year, and we realized a $40 million increase in other revenue, or half a point not recognized as PRASM. Cargo sales of $160 million were down roughly 1% during the period, which was all currency related. This is the best cargo result in eight quarters, and we saw sequential improvement through the quarter with cargo revenues up 12% year over year for the month of March. Looking ahead, we have a good line of sight on positive RASM momentum. For Delta, domestic accounts for roughly two-thirds of our revenue base, so it is critical to get the entity to positive RASM. Over half of our domestic network was positive in the quarter, and in the second quarter, we are on track for two-thirds of the entity to reach this milestone. Leisure yields and demand remain very strong as we head into peak summer. Peak business demand also continues to be solid, and the outlook remains strong. 84% of our corporate travel partners are projecting their spend will be maintained or increased for the rest of 2017, up one point year over year. Business fares are moving in the right direction, and further improvement in domestic business yields remains our top priority and opportunity. To give some perspective, we saw double-digit declines in average domestic business fares from early 15 through last fall. Since then, fares have recovered roughly half of that lost ground, and getting business fares back to the levels achieved in early 2015 would provide significant additional revenue momentum. Our branded fare initiatives perform well, with revenues up 10% for the quarter. We expect this growth to accelerate as we add the ability for our customers to buy up to Comfort Plus and our first-class post-purchase in this quarter. We also completed the expansion of basic economy to 100% of the U.S. and Canada and have started rolling out the product in our international entities. Basic economy is now available in more than 25,000 markets. Overall, our branded fare initiatives are on track to produce over $300 million of incremental revenue this year. Turning to our international performance, Latin unit revenues improved approximately 4.5% year-over-year on 2% capacity growth, marking the third consecutive positive quarter for the region. Brazil momentum continued, with RASM up nearly 45%, driven by the country's improving economy, strengthening currency, and our partnership with gold. Monday, we received DOT approval to implement our JV with Aeromexico. We are looking forward to even deeper cooperation and driving incremental value for customers and shareholders through this innovative partnership. Looking to 2Q, advanced RASM for the Latin entity shows accelerating momentum as we approach the one-year anniversary of the entity's inflection. Between domestic and Latin, we now have 70% of our global system delivering positive RASM, a very different place than we were at this time last year. In the Pacific, our unit revenues declined 3.9%. Trends are moving in the right direction as well, as this region was five points better than the December quarter. Alliances are crucial to Delta success in the Pacific, and we were pleased to announce our plan to implement a joint venture with our longstanding partner, Korean Airlines. This arrangement with Korean complements our existing alliance in China with China Eastern. Both alliances will play a greater role in our Pacific network by providing premier gateways to key markets in Southeast Asia and China as we continue to reduce our reliance on our Narita hub. 
As we move through the year, we should see continued improvement as we downgauge our fleet and retire the remaining 747s we have in service. These older, less efficient aircraft will be replaced by the A350, providing a best-in-class product along with a lower cost of production. Last week, we won a Crystal Cabin Award for the highly competitive cabin concepts category for the Delta One suite that will be introduced on the A350 later this year, recognizing this product for innovation. Kudos to the marketing and fleet teams for this great recognition. Our Pacific restructuring has been a multi-year undertaking. We now have the right foundation in place to enhance our profit performance in the region moving forward. Finally, turning to the transatlantic, Brazen fell a half point with roughly 1.5 points of currency impact on a four-point decline in capacity. We are offsetting some of the pressure from industry capacity and currency with a strategy of leveraging our strong joint venture positions in Europe and growing U.S. point-of-sale volumes. While we expect that it will take slightly longer to achieve positive RASM in the transatlantic, this entity continues to drive strong margins and cash flows for our owners. Long-term, our plan to drive improved performance in the transatlantic starts with more seasonal flying that better aligns our capacity with demand. Next, we'll build on an improved cost structure by upgaging our fleet as we retire our oldest 767 aircraft, which starts this summer, and replace them with more efficient A330s. We'll also continue to innovate with new products and services like Delta One Suites, Comfort Plus, Premium Select, and Basic Economy. And we'll take delivery of new aircraft using new seating configurations to ensure we have the right mix of premium and economy seats in these markets. This platform, we believe, will allow us to compete effectively with the growth of the low-cost carriers across the Atlantic. Thinking about the network as a whole, we feel confident that we have turned the corner on positive RASM, and we will continue to stay conservative with our capacity levels to help firm the unit revenue trends. For the June quarter, our capacity will be flat to up 1% with approximately two points of domestic growth and roughly a 1.5 point decline in international. Our unit revenues will be up in the one to three range for the June quarter, which is one half point lower than our expectations were last week before the storms in Atlanta. This will be driven primarily by continued momentum in our domestic unit, which we are expecting to be up between three and 4%. We are seeing a good start to the quarter and the month of April may potentially still be positive, including a two to three point negative system RASM hit related to the storm impact. And given what we are seeing in this quarter and further out, we feel that we are well positioned to deliver top-line growth through positive RASM going forward. We are there in domestic and Latin entities, and we have solid plans in place for the Pacific and transatlantic. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to my good friend, Paul. Thanks, Glenn, and good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to start by echoing Ed and Glenn and expressing my sincere thanks to the Delta family for all they do for our customers and, importantly, for each other every day. Uh, this culture is the foundation that really makes our business uh, more durable and, and sustainable into the future. Looking, turning to our performance, you know, fuel presented us with our greatest challenge in the in the March quarter as our fuel expense increased by 26% or $325 million from the prior year. Our all-in fuel price of $1.71 per gallon was up almost 30% as crude prices climbed roughly $20 per barrel from the first quarter 16's low levels. 
Our fuel price also includes nine cents per gallon of losses from our legacy hedge book during the quarter. While increased crack spreads are also contributing to jet fuel prices, uh, at the same time they improve our refinery's profitability, naturally hedging jet cracks and proving one benefit of this investment. The refinery posted a $44 million profit in the quarter as evidence of this, lowering our, our all-in jet fuel price by five cents in the March quarter alone. And we continue to expect that the refinery will contribute $100 million uh, for the year in lower fuel prices. Looking to the second quarter, we're forecasting an all-in fuel price in the range of $1.68 to $1.73 per gallon, which is down roughly 13%, mainly due to last year's hedging activity. While we expect fuel prices will begin rising again in the second half, as we've seen in the last week or so, the year-on-year -year increases are expected to be below what we witnessed this quarter. While fuel was the biggest headwind in the first quarter, we also faced some pressures in non-fuel costs, which drove our CASM X fuel up 3.6% higher year-on-year. -year. This was driven by the timing of our maintenance spend, various product investments, employee pay increases, as well as pressure from lower capacity during the quarter. We were able to successfully offset some of the pressure as we continue to drive productivity through initiatives like our Delta Material Services Organization or our surplus part-out strategy, pension savings driven by our excess funding strategy, and upgaging. For example, we produced 1.6% higher domestic ASMs in the March quarter on 0.8% fewer departures and expect to see similar benefits from upgaging going forward for succeeding years. Our maintenance cost pressure, pressures are expected to continue into the June quarter, and we will see additional costs as our ground and flight attendant employees will receive a well-deserved 6% increase on April 1st. These factors are expected to result in non-fuel unit costs up 4 to 6% for the quarter. This includes about one point of pressure from last week's storm-related cancellations. But as we move into the second half of the year, we expect to deliver approximately 2% non-fuel unit cost growth as maintenance spending tails off, we annualize product investments, and lap the August technology outage. As a result, we remain on track to keep our full-year CASM X growth in the 2 to 3% range, consistent with our long-term cost target given this year's lower capacity levels. These cost expectations, when combined with our unit revenue outlook, are expected to result in a June quarter operating margin in the range of 17 to 19%, an increase over 2016's normalized 16.3% performance. For the back half of the year, while fuel prices are climbing, our chasm increases are moderating and our RASM trajectory is improving, so we continue to expect our margins to expand compared to the prior year on a normalized basis. While we expect that this will result in margins for the full year that are roughly 150 basis points below 2016 levels, all of that contraction will have already taken place in the first quarter, and we feel that we have good momentum building to continue to drive value for our owners through top-line growth, margin expansion, and prudent deployment of capital. Turning to the balance sheet, we took advantage of favorable market conditions and our investment grade rating to proactively address our pension obligation this quarter. In a sign of our financial strength and durability, for the first time in nearly 20 years, Delta issued unsecured investment-grade debt. In the transaction, we issued $2 billion of three- and five-year notes at a blended rate of just under 3.3%. My congratulations to the entire finance and legal teams for a job well done on this transaction. 
All of these proceeds have been put into the pension plan already. This contribution lowers our pension expense significantly in 2017 and is one of the initiatives we are using to achieve our CHASM target this year. While the additional debt drives $70 million in higher annual interest expense in the near term, the overall transaction will improve our free cash flow as we lower our pension funding from $1.2 billion to $500 million in voluntary contributions for each of the next three years. Additionally, this contribution completes all of our required minimum funding through 2024, creating additional cash flow flexibility for the future should we ever need it, although we will continue to focus on voluntary contributions to proactively address the obligation. Our adjusted net debt increased to $8.8 billion this quarter driven by that debt issuance as well as seasonal liquidity. However, we remain committed to achieving our $4 billion debt target, which the additional free cash flow will help us achieve. Excluding the accelerated pension funding, we generated $675 million of operating cash flow this quarter. We continue to focus on investing in the business for the future. In the first quarter, CapEx spending was $1.4 billion, which included $620 million for our strategic investment in Aeromexico as we successfully completed our cash tender offer. Core CapEx spending was approximately $800 million, primarily driven by investments in aircraft, facility upgrades, and technology improvements as we continue to drive towards our new data center. For the June quarter, we currently expect CapEx of approximately $1.2 billion, which includes about $175 million to exercise the derivatives necessary to complete our purchase for a 49% stake in Grupo Aeromexico. In the March quarter, we also returned $350 million to shareholders, paying $149 million in dividends and $200 million in share repurchases. We remain committed to consistently returning capital to our owners and look forward to sharing more details on our capital allocation plan for the next several years next month at our May investor meeting, which will mark our fifth consecutive Spring Investor Day. In closing, the solid result we achieved this quarter has us on track to deliver on our commitments with a performance that is consistent with what we outlined at our December Investor Day. Producing a result similar to last year will be another testament to the durability of our business model, and we remain focused on driving sustainable performance regardless of the challenges we face. Jill? Thanks, Paul, Ed, and Glenn. Jennifer, if we could uh, move to the analyst portion of the call, if you could give the instructions for the Q&A. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please be sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, that is star 1 if you would like to ask a question. And we'll hear first from Dwayne Pennyworth with Evercore ISI. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Um, Paul, on the on the second half uh, non-fuel cost cadence of 2%, can you help us think through maybe third quarter, fourth quarter, because it, it feels like you'll have a sizable decline in the, in the fourth quarter? No. Good morning, Dwayne. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your question. You know what? Um, you know, obviously on a uh, on a non-normalized basis, there's a significant lump in uh, the reported earnings for 4Q because of that. Uh, retroactive component last year. But as you look at the normalized results in the second half due to both uh, a little bit of higher capacity utilization in the in the peak summer periods uh, and the second half of the year, 
as well as lapping uh, various product investments that we made um, beginning last year with meal service, enhanced snacks, et cetera, uh, we start to see some of that chasm pressure wane, and that's what's driving a, a higher uh, pressure in the first half than the second half. Okay. And then on the um, advanced funding on the pension, can you quantify sort of the magnitude of that cost savings and, and when that kicks in? Does that kick in, you know, now, or does that kick in sort of on a 2018 basis? No, the, the, the savings of the pension were all predetermined as amortized over all of 2017. So that run rate, uh, which is in excess of $100 million of, uh, of net savings uh, to the company, is, is already baked into one key results and will continue through the rest of the year. Thank you very much. Thank you. And next we'll hear from Dan McKenzie with Buckingham Research. Mr. McKenzie, your line is open. Oh, yes. Hi. Thanks. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, <clears throat> Glenn, there, there's been a number of medical, media articles, pardon me, you know, highlighting the move of U.S. banks uh, away from London to other European capitals. Virgin Atlantic is, is now predicting a loss this year. Um, and, you know, you've talked about the fleet changes you plan to make to help get back to positive unit revenue in Atlantic. But I'm wondering how you're thinking about solving for London specifically. How much revenue could be at risk? You know, what steps are, are you contemplating here, if any? Uh, the declines in, and the reason for the decline in the forecasted profitability of Virgin Atlantic are more related to currency. And as you know, the British economy so far has held up better than anticipated post-Brexit. Uh, while we've heard a lot of noise about uh, people moving, and uh, we respond to the demand, and I think we have a lot of levers should we actually see that materialize. But given that we haven't really seen demand declines yet, I think it would be premature for us to announce what we might do if uh, demand declined. And I, I think what we've seen is, you know, it's never been a better time to go to the U.K. or it's never been a better time to go to Europe for U.S. travelers. And we've seen an offset of uh, U.K. point of origin. Uh, the U.S. point of origin has more than offset the decline in the existing U.K. weakness. Dan, I uh, want to add also that our transatlantic business to London with Virgin Atlantic is solidly profitable. And you need to remember in the Virgin Atlantic result, there's also other parts of the world they fly to out of London outside of the transatlantic, and that's probably the area of core, the core weakness, one of the areas of core weakness that they're experiencing. So we feel very good about our transatlantic position in London. Yeah, that's perfect. And I, I do see bookings uh, to London actually are up uh, quite strongly here for, for the second quarter um, into the U.K. just in general. And then I guess if I could just follow up with a, a second question, you know, I guess again for, for you, Glenn, the network investments over the past year, five years actually have been pretty impressive. And you know, just given the JV arrangements that you guys have been able to ink out here, and, you know, from where you sit today, are there other investments out there, you know, that you believe could, could be accretive? Uh, Dan, we're not going to speculate on future, future uh, uh, relationships. You know, the, the, the two big ones that we're looking at, obviously, is the Aeromexico uh, JV that's going to be launching this quarter. And we're very excited about that. And as I mentioned in my prepared remarks, the Korean JV, which will – May, in my opinion, be a real game changer across uh, North Asia, and uh, we're excited about both. Understood. Okay. Thanks for the time, guys. 
And we will now hear from Jamie Baker with J.P. Morgan. Hey, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? We can, Jamie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Ed. Uh, the first question for Paul, and I'm sorry to start with a modeling question, but it, it's an important one, and I'm getting things by, you know, some clients looking for some clarification. You know, when you talk about margin expansion, how exactly are you defining the baseline? Is it simply reported margins from last year, in which case the street doesn't seem to embrace your third quarter guide uh, or, or implication, but it does on the fourth quarter, or is your baseline adjusted for the pilots that were out of period but captured entirely in last year's fourth quarter? I guess I guess the easier way of asking is, what do you consider your second half 2016 operating margin to have been? So the um, we'll get back to the specific normalized. I don't have the margin calculation right in front of me, but we're looking at it on a normalized basis uh, going forward. But for the second half of the year, and certainly the full year results factor all of that out um, because it's it's just a matter of timing. But consistent with what we've said, um, uh, you know, going back to uh, the uh, fourth quarter results as well, the normalization is. Uh, Taking out, I think it's $390 million, $380 million out of the fourth quarter, and just allocating it evenly across the uh, the first three, and that spreads it evenly across the full year. So your second half adjusted is probably something in the low 16 range, then, correct? I think that's about right. Yeah, we'll get back to you on the specific. Okay. okay. It is the nor- it is the normalized result that we're looking to expand sure. margins on. Sure. Yeah, and, and again, I apologize for tying up the call with modeling questions like this. Uh, second, second one for Glenn. You know, you mentioned 84% of your corporate accounts expend, expect to spend more on air travel. You know, I'm assuming that's a volume figure as opposed to being corporations that account for 84% of corporate revenue. First, am I correct? And second, for the 16% that presumably expects to spend less. Any colors, what lines of business they fall into? Uh, the, the 84% is a survey of our corporate clients, and it's the percent that uh, are expecting to spend more. That is a first, is one point higher than it was last year, and it is a first quarter record high. So right. really not not a lot of color around the 16% that do not, but they're, you know, they're uh, scattered around various industries. I think the couple of standouts that are, are very positive this year would be energy um, and uh, banking and finance. So I think there are probably good reasons for both of those to be optimistic about travel for the rest of the year. Okay, that's helpful for the caller. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jamie. And we will move on to a question from Michael Lindenberg with Deutsche Bank. Uh, yeah, hey, um, two questions here. Um, I guess first one for Paul. In the March quarter in the non-op area, that $44 million miscellaneous loss, so presumably the 49% of Virgin is run through their, um, their March quarter. What, what percent of Aeromexico is actually being run through the March, uh, March quarter? Um, there's, there's actually oh, none of it going through there at that point because the, okay. the, uh, the tender offer wasn't completed until the end of the quarter. Okay, okay. So then so it's just the Virgin piece, and the next quarter we'll have 49% of both Virgin and Aeromexico in the June quarter. Is that the way to 
Perfect. And then just my second question to, to Glenn, um, you know, you, you're guiding to system passenger unit revenue up 1% to 3%, Glenn, and I think you indicated that you anticipate that two-thirds of your domestic markets will be positive PRASM in the June quarter. So when we think about domestic PRASM, is that going to be – is the year-over-year gain going to be running better than system average, or is it going to actually be below system average? How should we think of it? I think actually in the text we gave a, a figure of we thought that the, the unit revenues domestically would be higher than that. Okay. Okay, very good. It's okay, the uh, expect unit revenues to be up approximately three to four domestically. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. And we will now hear from Rajiv Lawani with Morgan Stanley. Uh, Thanks for time. Just a... Uh, a question on the the two Q prism guide. Um, what are you assuming on the on the close in side um, as as we go through the quarter? Are you looking for a, a real acceleration from from one Q, and then maybe what what you're seeing today and in April, um, excluding all all the noises of the storm, obviously. Well, Rajiv, uh, we have very positive rasm for the rest of the quarter on the books for domestic in particular. And uh, what we've seen in the past is as we move into the months, because the business fares were lower, those yields declined as you got to the day of flight. Uh, we're seeing that taper off substantially from where we were just a few months ago, and we're really just anticipating that the existing trends continue um, with just slight improvements over the quarter. Okay. And another kind of related question, and you touched on this a bit, Glenn, in your proposed remarks, but the basic economy from yourself is starting to to get rolled out through the system, and you're seeing others do it. How is that sort of coming in um, to the market? How is it impacting some of the numbers? Is it helping? Is it not? I don't know. Well, the, the big advantage we have, I think, with basic economy is the fact that when people are presented with the option of buying basic economy, and for these are who, people who are buying the lowest available fare, when they're actually presented with what's the content of this product, they're selecting something else. And that's the real value, is to be able to define a product and then be able to match that product to what customers want. And that's really how we've tried to decommoditize the industry, is to you know demonstrate to people what the products and services are and separate them out, because if we're not able to do that and we're only playing to the lowest common denominator, then you wind up being commoditized. And I think when you think back to the frequent flyer program and how we used to give mileage based just on how long you flew, not how much you paid or what products you bought, we've really tried to reinvent the entire airline experience to be based not just on a seat and a fare, but a line of products. And a quick follow-up there. So you're seeing that for for yourself, Glenn. Is it is it showing up throughout the system as well in terms of just less fare dilution in terms of not approaching it um, as a commodity, as you noted? We we've been, uh, as you know, we were the first major carrier to introduce basic economy, and other carriers have announced it and now have begun implementation of it, but they haven't really put it out broadly in application. So I think it's early for us to to be able to communicate what their what their implementation is going to do to us. 
Very helpful, Glenn. Thank you so much. And we'll take a question from Savi Seath with Raymond James. Hey, good morning. Um, just on the uh, capacity growth, I know you reiterated overall capacity, and I'm just wondering if the, the plan still is similar to uh, you know, what you laid out at Investor Day, which is, I think, roughly 2% for domestic, flat for Atlantic, down 6 for Pacific, and up 1 for LATAM. Is that still the thinking uh, on the regional basis? Broadly, yes. I mean, that's, those, those are the numbers uh, in total. Helpful. And then, Glenn, if I can just ask on the on your comment, um, it, it was a comment that the international, uh, kind of the trends in the international segments should continue to improve modestly as you go through the year. And, and I particularly am curious about the transatlantic because it seems like over the kind of the uh, off-peak period, there's a lot of good capacity discipline. But um, you know, with, with the peak summer coming on, we're going to see high single-digit type growth uh, in the industry, and just wondering why that wouldn't maybe make things a little bit worse um, in, in over the summer period. I think in the prepared remarks, we said that we thought it would take longer to get to positive RASM in the transatlantic than it would the other entities. But uh, we are seeing very robust U.S. point-of-sale demand to Europe for the peak summer. And uh, we're believing that, for, at least from our perspective, that most of that will be absorbed by that higher demand. I can't speak for other carriers. All right. Thank you. And we will now move on to a question from Hunter Kia with Wolf Research. Hey, good morning. Thank you. <clears throat> Paul, uh, does your 2Q margin guide factor in a, an adoption for the new FASB rule on pension accounting where you drop certain expenses below the line? Um, and if not, when will you do that? And can you quantify the impact for us, please? Um, sure, Hunter. Good morning. Yeah, the, uh, it doesn't reflect any early adoption um, as uh, uh, we will uh, implement that in first quarter of 18 uh, as required by the adoption. Um, and we'll provide more details on that because there will be a lot of changes in 2018, obviously, with revenue recognition and et cetera. So we'll, we'll get into more detail on that later in the year. Great. Thank you. And then maybe another one for you or, or really anybody, I guess. But, you know, Richard made some comments in the past about uh, some industry overordering in the wide-body side. I think you referred to it as a bubble. I'm wondering if that's sort of still the Delta view on that and then if you want to turn that into a broader conversation around where you stand with the order book on the wide-body and replacement side, uh, that would be really helpful, too. Thank you. Andre, this is Ed. Yes, we, uh, we continue to see excess capacity in uh, wide bodies as we look, uh, look to the uh, future for the industry as a whole. Uh, we continue to look internally as to what that means for Delta, and we're in discussion with our OEM partners on what that means. And uh, you could anticipate some, uh, some reductions, I think, broadly uh, over the next several years. Any, any potential comments on what you're thinking about maybe issuing some RFPs for your own replacement needs? Uh, we will uh, comment on that when we actually issue the RFPs. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And we'll now hear from Daryl Genovese with UBS. Hi, guys. Thanks for the time. Um, Glenn, domestic industry capacity is growing about 4%, which is greater than not, uh, not just greater than real GDP growth, but greater than nominal GDP growth. Um, yet your domestic unit revenue is seen up 3 to 4%. So 
Can you just comment on the extent to which you think uh, the current um, the current strength in the pricing environment is is, is driven by um, just clawing back gratuitous discounts from years past uh, that will sort of eventually run its course um, versus an actual real improvement in the supply demand um, balance? And I guess I would I would ask that you characterize that by saying whether or not you need to see a reduction in industry capacity. Um, growth over the next couple of quarters in order for the trends that you're seeing right now um, in domestic unit revenue to hold. Thank you. Uh, I, I'll answer the second part of your question first. I think that we are comfortable that with the capacity that's available in the industry today that we can achieve significant positive res revenue momentum through foreseeable future here. And the foreseeable future for an airline is probably three to six months. Um, the the first question I could you go back on that because I wasn't quite uh, understanding. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I was just asking the same question in kind of two different ways. So I guess you broadly answered it, but what I had said was, um, you know, we're seeing about four percent domestic industry capacity growth, perhaps as much more than that, um, which actually exceeds nominal U.S. GDP growth. And I was just wondering what you thought the formula was to get um, from, you know, domestic airline revenue, which historically has kind of grown in line with the U.S. nominal GDP, um, to something, you know, that's essentially, you know, twice that this quarter. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when you look at the macros, you could say it, it grows generally with GDP. Uh, this cycle, we've seen really robust leisure demand. So I think what you'll see in the industry, you know, this is just a forecast of when you get to third and fourth quarter, you'll see that it's actually probably growing a little bit faster than GDP because the customers are uh, the customer base has grown, and the fares required to now translate that into RASM are very nominal. Okay, thanks for that. And then if I could just ask Ed, um, Ed, we've had this proposal from Governor Christie uh, yesterday regarding. Um, you know, overbooking. Um, do you have any early thoughts on either the states or um, or the executive or the executive branch of the federal government's ability um, to regulate your ability to overbook um, without a you know, without a wholesale change of, of legislation in, in the U.S. Congress? Sure, uh, Daryl. We uh, you know overbooking is a valid business process. There's operational considerations uh, behind that. It's not a question, in my opinion, as to whether you overbook, it's how you manage an overbook situation. Uh, Delta, we've done, I think, a very, very good job of, uh, of managing our overbookings. We, we lead the industry in that regard. Uh, and interestingly, when you compare to an airline, um, some airlines out there actually advertise they don't overbook, um, and our numbers are 10 times better in terms of involuntary denied bookings than some of the airlines who already who, who advertise that they don't overbook, uh, but clearly do in terms of having involuntary deny, denials. So it's not about whether there's overbookings. And, and our uh, aggregate, if you think about the uh, full year of 2016, we had in total 1,200 uh, denied boardings for the entire year. That's one in 100,000 passengers. So I don't think it's a, a significant Challenge for us, I think it's it's very much about giving our frontline the tools and the flexibility to empower them at the first point of contact, and that's what we'll continue to do. 
Great. Thanks very much. We'll take a question from Joseph Donardi with Stiefel. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Ed, uh, two questions on the loyalty program. You know, 10 years ago, the idea of airlines looking to monetize their loyalty programs was discussed pretty openly. You said when you were CFO that monetizing it could be an option. Glad made some similar comments. Seems pretty obvious that the market isn't valuing the programs now. So I'm wondering if, if Ed, you can, if you agree with that assessment, and if so, what you guys can try and do to, to show the, the market what it's worth. We, uh, Joe, we have no intent to uh, to monetize or spin off the loyalty programs, if I'm understanding your question properly. Uh, and I'm, I'm not quite certain 10 years ago what was uh, what was discussed back then, but we've we've never uh, given serious consideration to actually spinning off the programs and, and and monetizing them in that manner. I think the issues that have been discussed over the last year or two as to providing a bit better color and transparency about the Margins in the loyalty arrangement make some sense, and we're looking at that, but we have no intent to uh, to go down a structural path. Does it make sense for you and the board to at least look into what the market may be willing to value the program at independently? I mean, clearly there would be ways for you to monetize the program without spinning it off. You could sell a small equity stake in it just to show the market what it's worth. Other airlines have done that. Does it make sense to at least explore what the value could be so you can make a more, more informed decision. You know, the, uh, the loyalty programs, in our view, are the relationships we have with our most important customers. And we have never seriously considered actually uh, monetizing or, or outsourcing that, uh, that relationship. So uh, I think the, the, there is value to what you are suggesting in terms of providing some better Transparency and value that's embedded within our within our our loyalty arrangements, but I don't believe we're going to explore an external uh, external infusion of capital into them. Thank you. Thank you. We'll now hear from Helene Becker with Cowan and Company. Hey guys, it's actually uh, Connor in for Helene. Um, just a little bit more on the, the Pacific. Um, I know you've seen sequential improvement in your results there, um, and there's been a lot of shifting capacity around there, but maybe you can just uh, give a more defined timeline on when you expect expect a, an inflection in that market, um, and maybe just like the mechanisms in which you expect will drive that improvement. Thanks. Sure. I think the inflections are uh – the down gauge of the airline from 747-400s to A350s, and that occurs late this year, early in 18. And the bringing online of, and this can happen even before the JV. The JV with Korean probably will not occur until 2018, but there are steps that we will take that will bring us closer to Korean between now and then that should improve the connectivity of the Incheon hub and uh, Incheon is already the premier facility and operation in, uh, in Asia, connecting Southeast Asia to the U.S. And we'll take another step forward this late this summer when we bring on the new terminal in Incheon, which will really be a state-of-the-art and probably the best terminal in the world and something uh, we think very exciting for our customers who use us to Asia to connect through. Great, thanks. Uh, actually, all my other questions were asked and answered. Thank you. Jennifer, we're going to take one more question from the analyst. Okay, sounds great. We will hear from Kevin Chrissy with City. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, can you hear me all right? First day with yes, a new headset. Yes, yes. All right, great. Thank you. Um, 
Maybe, Glenn, can you talk about the 100, I think you said 109% of industry RASM. Um, I think there's a view in the marketplace that that's a temporary phenomenon. Um, at least that's what I believe your multiple would suggest. Um, can you talk about how you've taken it from, I believe it was in the 90-something percentile, up to the 109? What percentage of that is market share and, and, and uh, that might be subject to uh, natural reversal? Kevin, hi, this is Ed. Um, you know, we've been averaging in the uh, 106 to 110 range of industry RASM for the last number of years. Uh, we continue to see it's sustainable. Uh, I don't believe it's a temporary phenomenon. I believe it comes back to quality of service and product and delivery by the best people in the industry. It's not something that, uh, you know, customers in the past have, have experienced as well in this industry that they're now continue, starting to experience better, and I think it's durable. I think it's sticky. Uh, we're not seeing any erosion in terms of overall corporate demand, and uh, our share continues to be very strong. So uh, we've heard this uh, probably for about eight or nine years that, uh, that Delta's revenue premium was, was uh, somewhat – uh, at risk, and every year we continue to to go to market and prove that the uh, the Delta people are the best in the business, and our customers value and pay us a premium for the uh, services we provide. Terrific. Thanks. I could have one quick follow up. Um, is there any change in philosophy of used versus new aircraft? There's a view out there that Richard was kind of the uh, proponent for used. Um, I want to see if there's any change in philosophy there. The the the, the uh, the used versus new aircraft are always at the table. Uh, they weren't driven by any one person. Richard was a proponent, as many of us were, and we continue to look at the best options for uh, for, uh, for aircraft in the future. And uh, no, it's it, listen. We bought a lot of new aircraft under Richard too. So, thank you. That's going to wrap up the analyst portion of the call, and I'm happy to turn it over to our Chief Communications Officer, Ned Walker. Hey, thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. Uh, Jennifer, we'll go ahead and begin the meeting Q&A at this point. I'd like to ask uh, each of the participants if they could limit themselves to one question and a brief follow-up. We should be able to accommodate most questions during the period. And with that, Jennifer, would you please review the uh, process for uh, asking a question? We'll get going. Yes, absolutely. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, please be sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. And we'll pause for a moment to assemble the queue. And once again, that is star one if you would like to ask a question. And we'll go ahead and take our first question. I apologize, just one moment. We'll take our first question from David Koenig with the Associated Press. Uh, hi, this is uh, for Ed, I guess. Uh, wondered if you could address why a one-day storm became a five-day problem that that caused you a $125 million hit to your pre-tax income. Are you, are you simply understaffed to deal with unusual conditions, and, and what are you going to do to avoid a repeat? Uh, thanks, David. Uh, no, we're not understaffed. Uh, the storm that hit us on Wednesday was a had the impact that, in my 20 years uh, at the airline, we've never seen. Uh, the the, the uh, it's not just a storm. There were there were seven different thunderstorm cells that happened uh, over a rapid fire basis, starting early in the morning to the evening. There were tornadoes uh, 
uh, in the region. We had a, a virtual shutdown of Atlanta for the better part of the entire day. And when you couple that with the very heavy uh, period of travel, because we're right in the middle of the spring break uh, travel period, the peak, uh, so we had limited uh, capacity and seats by which that we could reaccommodate uh, those disrupted uh, operations. It really created a, uh, a significant delay in terms of the, uh, the challenges that we, uh, that we face. Uh, we had crews that were, uh, that were diverted. Uh, we had crew rotations that were broken. Uh, we, uh, we certainly uh, understand and recognize the impact that's had not just on our crews but also on our customers, and we apologize as we did, and we certainly take full responsibility for, uh, for making this better into the future. But it was, it was a function of the environment. Uh, as I said in my prepared remarks, we have a team that's focused on changes that we need to continue to make in better crew tracking, better crew, crew uh, uh, information and contact uh, availability. We had crews calling in from all across the system that we were, we were literally running the airline um, hour by hour in terms of where, where crews were and, and getting them pieced back together. And it was a very difficult process for us. Okay, anything else uh, that you're looking at or, or is it considering? Well, as I said, the big, the big changes we're making are is around technology investment and getting better crew tracking. And ability. this is an issue that's not just the Delta issue. This is an, an issue for the industry as to how to minimize disruptions when they uh, when they occur. You know, typically we certainly have had storms in the past. Never in the middle of uh, the summer with that with with, with lack of warning uh, that we saw. Uh, when we have snowstorms or snow events, we typically get out of the way and we let the let the weather pass. We we were we were not able to get out of the way. It, it hit us as we were uh, right in the middle of one of the busiest travel periods of the year. Dave, this is Ned. I think also what uh, Ed has asked is that Gil West do a, a complete deep dive throughout the organization to find out lessons learned across all the different divisions, and that process is going on as well. All right. Thank you. And next we'll hear from Michael Sasso with Bloomberg News. Yeah, good morning. Can you just uh, talk about your your comments about wide bodies? It was a little unclear uh, whether you're talking about indi you, you, the industry itself might review orders. It, it did sound as if you're saying Delta is going to review its wide body orders. Can you just provide a little more clarity on that? Uh, both, Michael. Uh, I think the industry, when you look at the overall demand, uh, environment, not internationally, obviously, since you're talking wide bodies, with the level of, of capacity, there, there's pressure in the in the environment. Um, supply is is growing in in many international markets in excess of demand, and with the amount of new uh, new wide bodies in order, a lot of them, by the way, being triggered from the Middle East, uh, is going to create some some really significant pressures on uh, on pricing in the uh, in the wide body market. And, and just one follow-up. Can uh, can you talk about what happened with regard to crew tracking during the storms? There was, what was it an IT failure? I mean, was there a system that collapsed, or was it simply you know it worked properly, just kind of got overloaded or something? How did the crew tracking and kind of schedule and kind of you know break down? It wasn't a it wasn't a question that the IT. Uh, didn't work. The IT worked, and it was it was work, worked as designed. It got overwhelmed by the volume of broken rotations and and uh, cancellations and diversions. 
all of which needed to be put together on the fly at the at a level an unprecedented level of volume that we uh, that that overwhelmed the systems a bit. So no, the systems were working throughout. It was it was the 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 size and the magnitude and the volume that we were experiencing that caused the delay. Thanks, Mike. And we'll hear now from Chris Isidore with CNN. Hi, are are you concerned about the, the the publicity about the United case and to some extent the problems you had last week prompting people in Congress to um, uh, pass a law that would outlaw or severely restrict um, uh, overbooking? Um, you you had said earlier that overbooking was was a uh, useful tool if done properly. Are you worried about this becoming a um, um, uh, a new regulation or, or legislation um, restriction on you? I, I don't think we need to have additional legislation to try to control how the airlines uh, run their business in this space. Uh, as, I, as I indicated, it's a relatively small impact at Delta. While we, we every single involuntary denied boarding we take seriously and do our very best to minimize it, uh, our overall total number of involuntary denied boardings in the entire year of 2016 was 1,200 people, uh, which was down 50% from what it had been in the prior year. Uh, it's five times better than, uh, than our big major carriers and, uh, and uh, ten times better than some carriers that actually advertise that they don't overbook. I think the key is, is, is managing it before you get to the boarding process. And uh, that's what that's what our team has has done a very effective and efficient job over. You know, right. there, are now, offer, I, there are there are operational considerations, uh, the weight and balancing, uh, weather delay. I mean, there's things that happen that that create overbooking situations beyond just pure oversales. Right. I guess what I'm saying is, are you concerned that there has been talk by some members of Congress already about this, and and uh, Governor Christie's remarks were referred to earlier? Are you worried? That politicians will react to this story by by placing more rules or regulations, or, or are you confident that they'll 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 leave things legislatively the way they are? Well, all I can do is comment on how Delta handles it, and uh, I'm confident when or if uh, people had an opportunity to look at how Delta has managed it, they'd say Delta is doing a pretty good job of it. Okay, we have time for one more question, Jennifer. Yes, we will take our final question from Edward Russell with Flight Global. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the 767 retirements that you said would begin this year. I mean, how many aircraft will be leaving, and uh, which aircraft, uh, which aircraft do you plan to, to pull out? We, we were we were talking about the 747 retirements no, and, and the 767. We're, we're, we're initiating our 767 retirements. Three will be retiring uh, this year. I don't know the tail numbers, or and I don't know that we do. Are these domestic transatlantic aircraft? Um, these are transatlantic airplanes. We uh, we have retired all of the domestic 767s already. Got it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you all very much. That concludes the March quarter 2017 call. We'll be back in three months with the June 2017 call. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. That does conclude today's conference call. We do thank you all for your participation. You may now disconnect.